Welcome everyone. My name is Jamie Nemsis and welcome to Market Thinkers Series 3, Episode 5. As per usual, I'm joined by my business partner, Drew Meredith. Afternoon, Drew. Afternoon, Jamie. And our guest today is Simon Redman from Invesco Real Estate. Hi, Simon. Hi, Jamie. Say- great. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> it's morning. I think uh, Simon's joining us from London and it's uh, five o'clock in the morning. So thanks, Simon, for taking this call. Uh, this series is dedicated to the theme retirement as most people know drew and i run a private wealth management firm in melbourne and our focus is on retirement uh generally our clients are plus 60 and and generally we're managing the last third of their life or the capital for their life this series being around retirement um one thing that we talk a lot about to our clients is a a simple formula which is total return equals income plus growth um really simple to understand but lots of the concepts of uh, managing retirement money can come back to that uh over the, the the last four or five episodes we've talked about either income or growth today we'll be talking about both um we're we're talking today about real estate and property and where that fits in into retirement portfolios. And Simon, of course, is our expert today. Drew, can you provide a short introduction to the session and to Simon? Yeah, thanks, Jamie. And well, yeah, good morning, Simon. Um, I think good introduction is kind of one of our guiding principles at Waddle is to try and bring some an institutional rigor or an approach to, to mums and dads and the portfolios we help manage. Um, so when we talk institutional, we're talking about endowments, big pension funds, universities, and there's certain things that they bring to investment, which is things like discipline, structure, rigor and analyzing, but also the quality of assets. And that's kind of my segue into Invesco, where real estate has been a core part of institutional portfolios for decades um, since they've existed basically but it's not about buying you know a investment property or a a single syndicated building it's about you know having exposure of all different parts in all different sectors Um, so we've kind of after looking across the market forever we've we settled on Invesco given their kind of background in institutional grade property Uh, on that basis I wanted to introduce Simon and get maybe a bit of background on where your career is led you to how your career has led you to where you are today, Simon. Great. So thanks, Drew. And look, it's a pleasure to join you. Well, this morning, my time, uh, afternoon, evening, your time. Um, And the introduction from yourself and Jamie was was tremendous. Um, I've been involved in institutional real estate um, for most of my now 31-year career, uh, which um, started actually my career. I originally qualified um, by taking a land management degree many, many, many years ago. I qualified as a surveyor in the UK um, and then moved more internationally when I did an, an, an MBA to focus on some of the more investment side of things. Um, I've been at Invesco for the last 15 years and uh, having had fund management roles there, uh, corporate finance roles, client-facing roles, I've had quite a big mix. Uh, and about four or five years ago, what I saw or what I wanted to do was to really uh, provide the opportunity for your types of clients access to institutional real estate. And so um, I started the the program at Invesco of putting together a number of funds in order to provide that access to your client base, really your type of clients globally to institutional real estate. It is something which 
you know, I really wanted to allow anyone to be able to invest in the sort of real estate that the biggest, most sophisticated institutional investors get access to worldwide, which, you know, hitherto wasn't really possible so easily. And what does that, what does institutional look like compared, you know, we'll say, you know, investment property versus a building, but what does it look like? You're talking about global scale. I think you manage something like 80 billion in assets across the world. It's a good point, uh, Drew, because, and Simon mightn't be aware of the Australian market, but a lot of our competitors in this wealth management space and a lot of clients have single syndicate um, funds. So one property, uh, closed syndicate, it'll either go for seven years or 15 years. Um, and uh, essentially there's no liquidity. It uh, You might be buying a regional shopping centre and then you have to buy another one and another one and another one to complement it. So, And it's, it's actually a really popular marketplace in the Australian landscape. So maybe if that gives you a bit more background before you answer the question between what is retail and what is institutional. Absolutely. Well, when I'm thinking about institutional, um, I am thinking about larger portfolios. As a a firm, we manage um, over 85 billion in terms of the the opportunity we can afford to your sort of clients. That's a portfolio of around 28 billion dollars, US dollars globally. So what's the difference between that? Well, a syndicated building in Australia is perhaps fine, but you're putting all of your eggs in one basket. You know, and this Australia, the Australian property market goes through different cycles. What happens globally is that the, the property market cycles are very different. We're also typically investing in much larger buildings. So the average investment size of each individual building that we have is about $140 million. That's really even for syndicates, that's well beyond the scope of most investors. And the reason why that's important is that typically large buildings like that attract for us one of the best quality tenants. So, you know, you you said um, at the beginning, Jamie, when you're looking at total return, income and appreciation, the two components, we look very closely at the quality of that income. And so by attracting the best tenants in the best quality buildings, uh, institutional quality buildings around around the world, we get access to that that very good, very stable income. And through the pandemic, we've seen how resilient that has been compared to probably what you might have seen in sort of syndicated shopping shopping centres, for example, in Australia. It's a very different investment. So you're talking about tenants that range from like a Microsoft, maybe not Microsoft, but you know the biggest Fortune 500, S and P 500 companies to you know mum and dad it, shops, exactly. not, not 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 that broad. No, it, it's it's pretty broad, but Microsoft is one of our tenants. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it'd, be, it'd be the likes of Microsoft, Amazon. Um, you know, we 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 focus on these days on some of the more uh, technology companies, the key growth companies. For example, in in South Korea, where we um, let one of our large buildings in Seoul through the pandemic last year, that is to the largest South Korean technology company, all the way through to some of the largest banking. Uh, and finance um, companies as well. What is key to us is, is underwriting the quality, the quality income to make sure that's very resilient. It's quite often, I think, a different approach to just syndicating a, a building um, where you, know, you may look at the tenant quality, but for us, we're absolutely focused on that you know, institutional grade, if you like, income, which you might find in a more fixed income portfolio. And then look at the building as well to make sure that has future growth opportunity as well. 
So, so when a client goes into your fund, what type of properties are they getting exposure to and kind of roughly regions? Yeah, so, and, and this is another important bit about opportunity. Uh, so I'll, I'll ask, I'll answer something in reverse it's order. big question, really, think, wasn't it? Yeah, no. <laughs> <got> 20 minutes. <laughs> and, then, and, and the danger is, you know, I can talk about this forever. But, but if you think about it, the Australian market is, is relatively small. It's probably only 2% of the global um, uh, real estate or property market. And so part of being global is just the opportunity set. We've got a much bigger opportunity set to, to invest in. And the fact is the, the Australian property market does not reflect what's happening everywhere globally. There are different opportunities, different cycles. And to answer the first bit of your question, when we're looking at different properties, we are still focused on the, the similar main sectors that you'll be familiar with, um, being industrial logistics, office, retail, maybe residential, although that tends to be a smaller institutional part in, in Australia, much bigger elsewhere. But within that, there are other key sectors, which are um, the subsectors, which are, which are phenomenally important. So the focus today on things like healthcare in the US, which has got very compelling attributes, it doesn't really exist at scale in the sector in Australia. Is that um, like hospitals I, when you say healthcare? Is that what you mean? Yeah, so healthcare, uh, not, not quite going to the, to the kind of acute treatment of hospitals, but um, this is more where you can actually, well, part of the definition is that you can walk in and walk out. You don't arrive in an ambulance is, is one of the ways to think about it. Um, yeah, got it. Uh, and, you know, and one of the reasons that's very compelling in the US um, is that they've got an aging demographic. In the next 20 years, the number of... Um, people over 75 will double, increase by about 20 million. So think about in the scale, that in the scale of the Australian population as a whole, and the healthcare is privately funded. So that increase creates, creates a demand for more medical facilities and it's undersupplied. And so we're investing along, alongside those long-term demographic trends. So again, you know, going back to your syndication, what we're not doing is just trying to find a building we think is attractive, but first of all, we're looking at long-term secular trends that drive investor demand over the long term and that helps derive you know derive our strategy so there's just sectors which are not possible to invest in in australia has your portfolio evolved over the last five or ten years so have you got parameters around industrial versus commercial versus residential um and has it changed much in five years mm. yes when, when we're looking globally it changes both in terms of the emphasis on those different sectors I talked about, but also we we change our allocation to different regions and different countries. Yeah. You know, that goes back to the point that not all property markets are the same everywhere. You want to be overweight if you like to some markets sometime, underweight to other markets other time, similar from a regional perspective. So it changes quite significantly. Today, we are very overweight to the US with about a 45% allocation. We are overweight to Asia Pacific and underweight to Europe. Mm. Now we've we've really benefited from that recently with very strong performance in the US recently, but that allocation will begin to move over the next nine months or so. It's a long-term asset class, and we'll be you know downweighting the US over the next nine months, increasing our allocation to Asia and then to Europe, and probably in that order. How do you do that, Simon? So assume if there's a next dollar into your fund. You're looking at how do I allocate that? You must have an enormous amount of array of opportunities to invest into from sector, 
uh, geographical location and there how does it work internally do you have an investment committee that says that investment or a team or how does the next dollar get allocated in in your world we, we've got the great advantage of scale so um, you know the next dollar you to invest let's say let's say it's a million dollars you know, just to give a, a sense of scale bigger you know, than try, yeah, <laughs> investing, investing a million dollars uh, in a in a twenty eight billion dollar portfolio, which is what you have, is pretty easy. Yeah, you know, that's that's sort of like the change you find behind the back of your sofa. So being able to deploy that capital, we can do immediately. It doesn't mean we have to go out and buy a new building each time. We don't need to invest that new building each time. We can absorb that capital. But what we do is is in terms of um, implementing that those change in allocations, change in region, is that. You know, we've got over 600 real estate investment professionals in 21 offices and 15 countries around the world. And the job for those people locally is to tell us where they think the best opportunities in there are, are in their particular markets. And then we have our regional teams. Their, region, their, their job is to make sure we get the best, best allocated in each region. And then globally, you know, part of my role is to ensure that we can make the best regional allocation. So we're taking the best of the best, if you like, at each level uh, and being able to, to get those allocations right. It's impossible being global to know everything that's going on everywhere. So we rely very, very heavily on our local teams who are in those markets. And you will know just being in your, in your own in a market in, in Melbourne or for those who may be dining from Sydney or elsewhere, you will know that each individual market's got its own nuances. We've got experts in all of these markets and ultimately, we layer on that expertise to get absolutely the right allocation. And when you're talking about absorbing, you kind of, <clears throat> that kind of includes capital expenditure, doesn't it, where you can improve a property and ultimately increase the rent coming from it as well? Is that kind of a absolutely. Yeah, And that's why we have experts in terms of transactions, of buying, investing in the right properties. We also got a separate team, an asset management team. The DNA is a little bit different. The, the deal doer is a bit different, got slightly different DNA to the person who is managing that asset to try and maximize opportunity. But every time we make an investment, and this is a key part of our investment decision-making, is there's a business plan. And the business plan for every single building we have is to try and increase value. We never invest in something and then hopefully sit on it and hope for, hope for returns to, to arrive every time we have a business plan. So that may be... Um, doing relatively little, but um, looking at the market, but it can, can be going through a refurbishment, taking new tenants, improving today. What's very important is improving the environmental credentials of a building. That adds a lot of value. And, and we've just had our recent um, Gresber scores. Gresber is, is the global benchmarking service for sustainability in real estate. We've improved at every level and we've got some of the best funds in the world. So actually just the environmental things today, improving um, energy usage, waste diversion, that actually adds investment value today. It's a key focus of ours. You kind of alluded to it there too. How, how different is it doing a due diligence on a Singapore office building compared to one in where you are in London? I assume you're in London or nearby. It, it's very similar. So the, the investment process we have is exactly the same globally. It's important that we can look at the best relative value in exactly the same way. We need to be able to judge in potential investment performance in exactly the same way around the world in order, order, in order for us to make the right decisions. We're very unusual as a manager. A, being global is unusual. There aren't very yeah. many of us. 
and B, having exactly the same process. So it's, it's, it's identical. There are different legal nuances, different leases and things, but the process is the same. The approval process is, is exactly the same. And you also include some listed, so you've got listed and unlisted in the Australian strategy? We, we do. Um, and actually, this is a strategy managed globally. So whilst um, we, have, um, we have it set up for Australian investors, we also have investors from the UK where I'm sitting, um, Switzerland, the Netherlands, the Nordics, Canada, Singapore, um, Hong Kong, Israel, where I was last week, global investors. And we also mix institutional investors with your sort of clients. So the comfort is that also that we get a lot of institutional capital uh, coming in there as well. So we're, we're bringing the two together. Um, and yes, we do have some uh, liquid assets, listed securities in there. And that provides the ability for investors to invest any, every day. You can subscribe to our fund any day. That capital or that investment will immediately be deployed, uh, probably in securities initially before being directed into the into direct property. But that isn't just um, REITs or even global REITs. We invest also in real estate debt, real estate preferreds, if that makes sense to, mm, to your company. And that's, that's one of the ways you, Drew talked about how we, we selected the Invesco property fund for our model portfolio. But one of the things that you're doing um, that other funds aren't, and you've got to be really careful with this because there's, there's been many train crashes over the last 50 years, but uh, you, you're providing liquidity um, in a property, in a, a, a non-liquid investment, essentially. So for our clients, we can invest into it and we can get our money out of it, um, depending on market conditions. And some of those elements, you know, just the sheer size and the fact that a part of your portfolio is uh, invested into um, listed securities allows you and your group, I assume, to, to, to give our clients the benefit of liquidity. Yeah, that's, that's right, uh, Jamie. And we have, I, I'm very aware of some of the challenges funds have had in Australia and other places around the world. When designing you know, these funds that we have, uh, we were very aware of that. And some of the differences we have, one of the key ones, as I mentioned, is that we have global investors in our, in our, in our portfolio. And a majority of that capital is very stable, long-term institutional. Where we, there have been the train crashes, as you refer to, typically they're in domestic funds, almost exclusively, in fact, investing in one country into one type of investor. So yeah. in Australia, that'd be investing predominantly in Australian property with all Australian investors. And, you know, there's a mindset that people make the same decision, the same call on the Australian market at the same time. Yeah. In global yeah. property, it's, there's less reason to do so because the market cycles are very different and we've got investors globally. So, you know, and does currency your, help too? Currency must help um, balance all that risk out. Um, it, it does, you know, we, we typically look to hedge some of the currency exposure um, and we're not trying to play currency markets. We're sure. real estate experts. Um, but we know but currency right. is always a kind of a buffer in crisis. So it, it does, it does help a bit, you know, because it's very diversified in terms of currency as well. But, um, you know, we're trying to play real estate markets. That's our expertise. Sure. Currency, we'll look to hedge much of that. Yeah. And talk, talk to us about the new sectors that are emerging. You know, there used to be a, 
a warehouse kind of sector that it, no one ever wanted to touch, but now it's called big box and, you know, data centers and everything that's super cool. Um, is that a, a sector that, you know, uh, your group is investing into or you find, you know, uh, as, as an exciting change in real estate? Yeah, look, and real estate's been the same forever, hundreds of years. The, the way people use it are the same. You need somewhere to operate your business, to connect with people, to innovate or to live um, or to consume, uh, click as we call it. But actually what changes is secular trends, whether that's online retailing, life science growth, technology growth, demographics, aging. And so those are the things we follow, those long-term demographics. As I said a bit earlier on, we're not just trying to find a building and hope it makes sense. We're fitting it into that secular framework. And to your point, that means there are different opportunities and they change over time. So today, <clears throat> we're very focused on technology innovation sectors. Uh, we like the life science sectors. We like online retailing, although that's not new. Um, and what you're referring to is industrial or logistics properties, which provide that online retailing. You know, that's been around for two decades. Is that the word dark? Is it dark? They use the word dark, dark stores or dark stores or do they uh, use that? No, in... that, that dark stores tends to, tends to relate to, to food retailing where they've got oh, dark oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, But this has been around for a, for a long time. And what's interesting today is that you know, different markets are at different states of maturity. So the, the online retailing penetration in the US and the UK is probably the furthest along. The UK is probably, well, I think it is the most um biggest penetration we're over 25 percent of all all retail sales online but what's interesting to us is that a lot of the markets are a long way behind relative to that so those are other markets in europe such as spain and italy um other markets are in in asia are behind that as well i think we're so 20 we can, that's it yeah well there are good reasons for that which i could go into actually um uh, but the thing is we can we can then look at those more mature markets uh, we can learn and we have learned lessons from those and we can apply those lessons as we invest in other newer markets, less mature, creating creating better opportunities or newer opportunities around the world. So this and also, like, sorry, there's a, there's a more bank. Have you heard of Cube Holdings? I think Logos is a big uh, Southern Hemisphere infrastructure owner. So they have a more bank terminal in the middle of New South Wales. It's probably the kind of idea you're, you're talking about there. It, it is. So the challenge with Australia is, is, your population and scale. So in the UK, which is around 70 million, we're a pretty small country. The cost of actually distribution, taking something from a warehouse to a person is pretty low. The distances in Australia, because of your overall location, are very big. So that creates a different economic challenges for the model, which is why Australia has been behind, um, is because the the model's easier, online retailing model is easier to execute in a country like the UK than it is for Australia. Australia will catch up. But we've got all this experience around the world when we're looking at Australia <clears throat> to make investments in, with the benefit of knowledge many other people don't have because we take it from elsewhere. And we can also deal with some of the biggest companies. Amazon, for example, in the biggest online retailer outside of, uh, outside of perhaps China, um, uh, you know, we, we have got a, a lot of fulfillment centers, which we've either constructed for them or they occupy. Mm. So we have that direct relationship with them, which frankly, an individual syndicated building will never have. You've got to have that scale for that relationship. 
If that's great on the way in, Simon, how do you decide what you exit? Because you know, mm-hmm. building relationships are really important and you know, getting in on ground zero is, is great to build the building purpose. How do you then make that sell decision and go, okay, the, is it cap rate? Is it something about assets? Is it better opportunities? What, what makes you sell an asset? Well, first of all, like you know, I, I said at the beginning, um, we look at buildings in exactly the same way globally. Part of the investment decision-making to go in is actually how we go out. It's very important to know what, what your potential exit is before you even start investing. You shouldn't have any, you shouldn't put any store in hope for value. That doesn't really work. You need to have some, some idea. And so every business plan for every building we have, we're thinking about the, the exit and what that sale decision is. And we have every single property around the world, we have metrics we're looking at. Um, we, we reanalyze that roughly every six months. And if, if the future returns from a building that we have don't meet the thresholds that we've set in terms of income or total return or opportunity, then that is a potential sale. No building in our portfolio is sacrosanct. You've always got to be thinking about a potential exit and how you, how you get out there, how, how you get out of the, that investment. Um, and it's when the future returns don't meet our hurdles, then we'll be looking at a potential exit. So what does that mean in practice? It means the average length of time we hold a building is around seven years. And so we're always investing and selling and selling buildings because we're looking to maximize the opportunity for each one, maximize that business plan from each individual property. So we've got a question, Cather. A good segue is probably you're talking about the domestic macro environment. It's just as important when you're selecting or selling assets. So we've got a question around... Bond rates, naturally, every, we had an, an explosion in the four-year treasury bond last week, if you saw that. How important uh, are bond rates in terms of your valuations? Um, and, you know, everyone's talked about, uh, in, in Australia, people are talking about you know, risk of residential property if interest rates increase. Bond rates versus interest rates, different things, obviously. Um, how important yeah. is, it, is Does it keep you awake at night? follow-up <laughs> uh, <laughs> question. Sure. Short answer to that is is not particularly no. Um, you know there are just to answer the kind of the interest rate question. Interest rates globally have been incredibly low. What's what's helpful for us is that the the spread, if you like, between property yields and bond yields around the world is is in a very normal range, and in and in some markets is as wide as has ever been. So what that means to us is that we can see um, some interest rate rises occurring and and that's being talked about around the world in different places uh, that'll have very little effect in terms of the uh, pricing of our real estate and it is worth now making a a big distinction between the residential where people kind of live or individuals invest in and the commercial property that we invest in they're very different asset classes really so i I don't i don't uh, i'm not terribly worried about uh, interest rate rises we have a little bit of debt in our portfolio. It's very low. It's around about um, 25 to 30% loan to value. What's that cost you, Simon? Sorry? <laughs> what does that cost you? borrowed in Japan or? Well, we bought in Japan, we borrow in, in Japanese yen. And that's, um, well, you can see that's pretty accretive to returns. <laughs> um, but that's, uh, but that's, that's also 2000 that is fixed. So I'm not worried about short term. What does interest me perhaps a little more is the, is the broader um, looking at more broadly into those macro trends, 
you tend to get interest rate rises uh, in order to try and control inflation, mm. which is which is what's happening at the moment. Now, that's beneficial for real estate. Uh, where we've got the data, historic data, times of increasing inflation have been very positive for, for real estate. You know, the last three times, for example, significant inflation in the US, real estate's outperformed by 800 basis points. And they, so if you think through that... Outperformed what benchmark? Is uh, that outperformed what we've seen in terms of inflation? So, okay. so when you're in an inflationary environment... So yeah, inflation of four, real estate's typically done 12. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and that's... It, it's kind of intuitively makes sense. You know, you tend to get an inflationary environment where economies are are doing better. That's why people are rising interest rates relative to keep a bit of a lid on that. Well, you know, that increases demand for property. Mm. So as long as there isn't a big development boom, mm. which we don't have anywhere really around the world, uh, and in fact, rising commodity prices will restrict development, most likely because of the cost of building, that's actually very good. And so... Um, so I, I don't really worry about that. And, and one of the questions we often get is, is property a good hedge for inflation? It's not a great direct hedge, but actually property in inflationary environments tends to outperform, which is a good thing. Particularly when you've got opinion. some flexibility, I guess, that you know, you're not just buying the same property and holding it for 20 years. You're selling right. some in some countries where maybe the economy is doing better and there's interest rates are falling. And that's kind of the, the benefit, isn't it? Exactly. You know, when, when property values were falling uh, during the pandemic, um, what we saw was in, again, to be relatively close to home to you in South Korea, our property values were increasing, for example. And so yep. that is part of our job is to make those right allocations. And most leases have got inflation hedge, inflation linked to them? Um, it varies. Leases are very different around the world. So oh, it, some are implicit, so they actually have inflation linked to around the world. Others are linked to the, the market rent. But as I say, in an environment where you're getting um, uh, strong economic growth, you're getting demand for real estate, rents tend to go up. We want to capture that. So we, we actually like the opportunity when we get leases coming to an end or when there are uh, reviews or bumps, depending on how you describe them around the world, where we get the opportunity to review we like to capture that additional rental growth. It gives from your kind of client perspective, you know, the income tends to be uh, more of a real income. Um, so it tends to increase where you get an inflationary environment. As I said, yep. it's not an absolute link or correlation, sure. but you tend to get that growth. But that's really helpful if you're looking for your future retirement, I would think. I'm kind of interested in some sector questions, if that's all right. So we've, uh, Australia's, we had a second lockdown this year, as you probably know, in Melbourne and Sydney. So everything seems to be six, 12 months behind what's going on in the UK and the US. Mm -hmm. So we're still talking about, you know, Jamie and I are in the city today. So are CBDs dead? Um, have, have they recovered? If you've got assets in every country, what, is it, what does activity look like in the UK versus Asia? What have we got to expect? Well, it, it would be great if I had a webcam and I could have fast forward about uh, four hours in the UK to our office and what's happening in London. It's as if there's no pandemic. Yep. You know, people are back to work. I got the train into, into work yesterday. Everyone mask wearing, of course, but um, it's, as, it's as busy as it's ever been. Um, and so, um, and that is a trend that could, um, uh, around many markets around the world where they've opened down and not in lockdown. I said, I was in, I was in Tel Aviv last week on business, mm -hmm. incredibly busy as well. So, 
So what we're seeing is when people can, um, and Asia Pacific is probably furthest behind, well, not probably, it is furthest behind in terms of coming out of this. But my experience around the world is that um, businesses, people, countries want to get back to normal as far as they can, and it happens very quickly. You know, from an office perspective, to be specific on that, uh, offices aren't full in many places, but CBDs are typically the most busy areas now, and, and sure. occupancy is very, very much back to where it was. And we think, you know, for good quality buildings and CBD locations, we don't really see any particular challenges from a, a COVID perspective, a pandemic's perspective, or changing working practices. Those which may be affected long term with working from home are going to be those which are a bit more peripheral, more secondary assets, less good quality tenants, which I'd expect. You know, um, that is why we focus on some of the best buildings, best locations around the world, and best tenants, of course. Markets are funny, aren't they? They all kind of operate in a similar way. In the last 18 months in the Australian share market, we've seen all these companies, um, a whole heap of companies, uh, double, triple, quadruple their valuation based on the spike that has been created around COVID. And guess what? They've come out um, 12 or 18 months later with downgrades because it was a one-off similar to residential remote property in Australia at the moment, if you want to buy something down the beach or on a farm, it's gone up 100%, 150%, 200%. And, you know, the core, what I would call core real estate, we're talking about residential here, 10 kilometres from CBD, hasn't necessarily moved too far. So there's this big structural shift of what people are prepared to change and, and pay for because they assume that then work-life balance is going to be balanced like it is in COVID we know whatever happens at some point we'll look back at COVID and say oh well, that was a fun period in time but it, it, it's all changed and it's gone back to normal real estate doesn't matter if it's shares or real estate does it that people get really a, a, a lens that they look through which is all about today and never about tomorrow and the next day and the next day and you must find that in real estate too where you know you get all these pressures about the today's environment and inflation and whatever. And when you're trying to build really successful long-term portfolios, it's just more noise. And there's a lot of noise and noise can make money and it can, can lose you a lot of money, but to stay focused yeah. is, is really important. And, and Jamie, that's why I was saying that we look at long-term secular trends because that is what really drives long-term value. Trying to make that short-term bet, you know, that's a, that's a tricky game to play. So we're looking at those, those secular trends, as I said, demographics, um, you know, still the work-life balance, you know, that flexible working, that's been a, that's been a trend for decades as well. Mm. You know, some of you will remember hot desking. That was a new thing a while ago, but that was about having more flexible working. And, and so, sure. you know, what, what the pandemic has done hasn't really changed anything for us. It's accelerated some of those trends we were already mm. investing in. So flexible working is one of those, having buildings to suit flexible working, the demands of, of companies that want that. That's absolutely been central to part of our investment um, in the office sector pre-COVID. Uh, environmental ESG concerns, fundamentally important. And we've been having that as part of the lens we look through for the last 15 years. Yeah, yeah. It now yeah. adds investment value. So all of these things are part of long-term secular terms, not that kind of short-term. And frankly, it hasn't changed our strategy at all what a, the pandemic has accelerated some of the trends which for us is great you know we were positioned for that and um 
I think we'll end up coming out of this, and we are already out of it in, in some places, in a much stronger position than, than we were than we went in. All right, so, so, so you, you go, Drew, because I've got a fun question to ask. Uh, I've got so another fun yet. one too. So <laughs> just on broad valuation, how's, how's property values look now compared to two years? So pre, we even knew about this virus coming out. Um, around the same, I know it's, you probably need to go US, Asia, Europe, or? No, well, we, we, we generally were higher. So we're, yeah. we're higher than we were pre-pandemic. Um, some useful kind of stats that that may be useful for your your um, your listeners or your uh, viewers is that in terms of um, occupancy, our portfolio hasn't changed in terms of occupancy over the last two years. In terms of number of tenants, our number of tenants have actually gone up over the last two years. How many is that? Like um, or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, in in that, in that twenty eight billion portfolio that that your clients could invest in. Uh, we're about 2,100 tenants. That excludes the residential, obviously, but uh, commercial tenants, 2,100, give or take. Um, and, and income is, is higher than when we went into the pandemic. Uh, so just if, if you look at performance, for example, the last 12 months, um, property level performance, we're, we're up this year by about 13% in the, well, in the last 12 months. So it's been pretty, we had a, a small downgrade uh, in terms of performance, or valuations through the pandemic, but it is pretty slight, nothing like compared to what you saw in the domestic Australian property market. And now, um, as I said, we're, we're very, we're up very significantly, both in terms of income and appreciation. That's probably a follow up I'll steal one again is how often are you valuing that that portfolio? So you do a desktop valuation, which is something only really when it goes up, Drew. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, look, we, 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 don't, we don't do any desktop valuations apart from for our own investment decision-making. Every single property, which today uh, is about 208 uh, in this portfolio, that's why the average size is around 140 million, they're big properties. They're externally valued every three months. We have no influence on that at all. Um, so they're all externally valued. And if you like, marks the market on a quarterly basis externally. Mm, a pretty good customer, if, is it CBRE or someone like that? Well, um, so put it another way, we've got pretty good negotiating power as well. <laughs> <laughs> Can you talk about um, the residential sector in the US and what that looks like? So um, build to lease or mm -hmm. um, it's different than the Australian market. Can you put some colour around that sector? Family, yeah. what's it called? Yeah, multifamily is multi called in the US. Yeah. Or, you know... Um, it's got different terminology around the world. I'll give you the American terminology, so okay, multifamily. Yeah. That's been a sector we've been investing in in, in the US um, since the early 80s, uh, which is where it really developed um, in the US. And that, that was down to affordability, you know, more people wanting places to live than they could afford. So it developed in the early 80s. It's a very mature sector today uh, in the US. We've been overweight that sector for many years. And again, that's, that's down to the kind of secular trends. You've got increasing population. Um, it's expensive you know, to buy um, in the US as it is in Australia. And their yields are very low in Australia as well. Uh, and so people rent and it's normal. Um, those, you know, it goes up and down a little bit um, over, over time. But those fundamentals remain very strong. And so we, we continue to like the residential sector in the US. Uh, multifamily, meaning they see blocks of apartments that we manage centrally is the, is the core of that portfolio. 
But increasingly now what we're doing is focusing on what we call single family homes. And so if you think about the, the natural evolution and our target market is principally kind of millennials. Mm. Um, and as you, as, you, as you grow up, you know, from co-sharing or cohabiting to couples, to getting married, perhaps to having children, really having a family, your demands change from wanting to be an apartment into a house. With different amenities, you're looking to be close to schools and those sorts of things. And so um, we are expanding more into that single family housing as well as the multifamily apartments. That's a big growth sector for us, um, a big opportunity. And, and unlike the multifamily sector, which in the US is, is roughly around, I think about 80% institutionally owned and managed, in the single family homes, it's only about two or three percent. There's a great opportunity to, in, to institutionalize that sector and use the expertise we've developed over, over three decades in multifamily in single family homes. But it is, it's a, um, it's a very, the multifamily sector, the residential sector in the US is very mature, is very institutionalized, is very normal for us to, to invest in, whereas it's not in Australia. So there's some and, stigma and to it, right? When I think about multifamily, I'm thinking, you know, a set of flats in, suburb I won't mention that you know is not very appropriate that's not and I've seen a couple of your assets that's definitely not what multifamily means in the US right absolutely not no when I was that kind of age I would love to have lived in one of the apartments that we that we yeah. own um, and so we look, we're not looking at super kind of penthouse premium yep. but typically the way we look at it is look at the demographic let's say a 25 to 35 year old demographic um, uh, normally a professional and so you know we look at income versus uh, or rent versus kind of a percentage of income typically and so now these are very high quality very amenitized as they as we would say in, in the US and so uh, given the scale we have they will probably have a gym uh, they, they may have um, dining areas which you can rent if your apartment is too small you want to entertain 20 people you can rent a dining area and a kitchen you go to San Diego, they have these on the roof, which is just amazing. Um, so it's a very different, very high quality, um, very professionally managed. We have some things in some of these um, properties whereby you have your Amazon delivery, you know, that'll arrive, that'll be taken in by the management team and you collect it from the reception when you go back in. So yeah, very different, I think, perhaps, Jamie, to what you might have been alluding to. And, a le- and leasing's a bit different there, is it? Is it, you know, Australia, you get no more than a 12-month lease, and then you have to <laughs> re-up or, or get out? Well, again, this, this, this varies around the world, but um, the, the average stay in, in the US stay, the average um, uh, someone rents an apartment for is, is somewhere between two to three years. Um, you you're constantly have a bit of churn. Um, what we did see through the pandemic is, I think this is what was being alluded to a little before, we saw a lot of people moving from say, CBD San Francisco um, to out of the Bay Area to kind of enjoy their work-life balance in, in the mountains sure. or something. Um, we, we, and, and so we saw some vacancy there, but actually that's pretty much trended back again now as people have realized actually they sure. want to get back into the office. Um, so, you know, a two, two years is probably a, a good way to think about that. Although if you're in Germany, the average is, is more like 10 to 15 years, interestingly. I'll put you on the spot. I was reading one of your updates that talked about a specific property in Germany, which I thought kind of 
explain <laughs> the innovation that's occurred. Was it, I think it was either an old shopping center that was converted into data centers and a mix of, of ah, retail. There we go. Yeah, I, I was I was hoping you'd find one. Yeah. Which as you know in detail. So I think you're talking about a um a property called Neuhopfenpost. And um forgive my terrible German accent, I do speak a bit of German, but uh, what that means is the new post office. Frankly, it was new in the 1930s. Um <laughs> but um it was a post office sorting office, and, and what we've got there, that's now multi-use. Um it's incredibly well located near the, the Hauptbahnhof, the central station. Uh, right in, right on the edge of the, the historic CBD, and that's multi-use. So in that property, we've got two data centers, actually. It's right on the, the Munich internet backbone. Um, we've got an Amazon fulfillment center, last mile delivery. Um, and so from that Amazon store or that Amazon fulfillment center, they can make 15-minute deliveries. And so, if, you know, and a bell goes off in the Amazon when they get a, a very short uh, window of delivery, and everyone rushes to get that one delivery out. It, it, it's incredible to watch. It's very, um, um, uh, it, it's, it's just a really interesting place to go. Uh, we've also got in there um, two supermarkets. Uh, we've got a um, educational facility. We've got some service offices. We've got some long-term offices, absolutely mixed use. The point of that about that building is that we love that um, uh, tenant mix because we can, we can focus on the right tenants where we see rental growth. Yep. Um, in that particular property. But ultimately, there's additional value there. It's such a great location. It's a historic building. But ultimately, we have the redevelopment of that building, that redevelopment opportunity um, at some point in the future. That's probably 10 years ago, 10 years away. Um, but we can then you know, rebuild into a, a more modern building if we think it's the right time as well. I love that, that building. Do you see that as the, the future or... Or that's just where there's opportunities. That that's that's where your active management will go. That's that's one potential exit. And I was asked earlier on, you know, what do we look at at the beginning? Uh, I said we were always looking at the exit. Uh, one exit may be when it's fully let to the right tenant mix, and and we've maximised what we think the rent is to sell then to another institutional or even syndicated investor, uh, or it may be to 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 redevelop it. Um, those are two options. We're always looking at those and. Whichever makes the best economic sense to us, we, we will choose. I've got a question for you, Drew. Um, <laughs> I've been stealing all the good ones. So. Yeah, I've got to make up my own. Um, uh, so, sounds. Uh, where does this fund fit in a retiree portfolio? Where Where do you use it? And and I'm asking a rhetorical question because obviously it's our portfolio. But where, where do you use it? Where do you see it? Is it does it is it a cash cash subsidiary? Does it replace equities? Does it fit as a hedge in the growth halts down the bottom? Where do you put it? And what role does it play? I think a big measure that I've always used, and I think we've always used in 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 separating assets, is the volatility of the of the capital, even though it's valued pretty regularly, and what the downside risk is. Um, so uh, where where we've tended to place it is between you know we call it for lack of a better term medium risk asset. So you're talking about slightly you know more risky than bonds, not as risky as equities. Mm. Um, if that kind of gives some spectrum, so it's kind of an alternative real asset, which is a bit different than a lot of other financial planning firms that would put it into the market bucket um, with their shares and their global shares. So for us, it actually sits pretty much in a defensive bucket, maybe at the bottom of that defensive bucket, 
being the most kind of growth orientated of the defensive bucket. But in these times, uh, when interest rates are really low, then portfolios that will be successful over the next 10 years have to be built, we think, with through a different lens or a different scale. And uh, Invesco is definitely helping us do that. Now, last question, Simon. I ask this, we ask this to the equity managers all the time and they always have an answer. So the pressure is on you. You're 65, you're retired and you only can buy one property in one region um, and you can't sell it for your retirement. So what property is it? Or a portion, (laughs) assuming that everything's $165 million. Uh, firstly, being slight, uh, kind of cute, I'd buy this fund. Yeah, come on. <laughs> Move on. You've got to be specific. <laughs> to buy a specific property around the world. It'd be nice to actually have been asked this perhaps right at the um, or any questions <laughs> coming before I was, I was coming on to that. But, so what, what would I like? So the characteristics I'd like would be in, to be in a very long-term resilient market. So that's probably even in a, in a CBD location um, yep. because then there's a huge amount of value in the location. And I could pick a number of different locations around the world. Um, being in the UK, the easy one for me would to be um, picking a, a building in London. Um, yep. Not going out of session. And, and, and if uh, I was going to pick a building out of our portfolio in the UK where I am, then I'd pick a, a building in, in a place called Manchester Square, which is one we own. Um, it's right in the heart of the West End. Um, uh, that would, that has, well, is that office? That, it's an office building. Um, and I like it for being an office building. Yep. It's in a location which has been relevant, frankly, for the last 100 years. Mm. Um, it will continue to be relevant for the next 100 years, beyond my lifetime, certainly. Um, and so what you'll take away from that is, firstly, I am still a fan of offices. Yep. You know, they are they're needed. I'm a fan of having very well-located buildings. Ultimately, location is the thing you want to look at. And if you've got those... Two things, you know, if, you, if you're an office building in a well-located place, tenants will always come because tenants, occupiers want to be in the best locations. They want to get the best access to their staff. They want to have great communications. And as long as you fill those locational requirements, then you tend to get long-term performance. So I'd be very happy with that building in my, in my long-term portfolio. And for me, I could go and see it in 45 minutes, which, which would be... I was sure you were going to pick San Diego for the weather, but... Uh... <laughs> well, I, you know, to say... You don't uh, live there, I, right? Yeah, it's just a best so capital appreciation. The, you know, <laughs> if, if it was down to weather, perhaps, but actually yeah. I was looking at, you know, the, the investment reasons, not Making those money, two. yeah. <laughs> and you, you wouldn't be a property guy if you didn't answer the question with location, location, location. It, so. Absolutely. It, it's, it's completely key, you know, uh, as... Uh, yeah, went to escape anyone. Yeah. Well, on behalf of Drew and I and Waddle Partners and all our clients, we thank you for getting up at five in the morning for this podcast. I uh, really enjoyed our time. Uh, you, you, your fund plays a really important part in our, our portfolio. So f- thank you, Simon. It's a pleasure. Thanks for seeing everyone. Thanks. Okay, guys. Uh, we'll see you next time. Um, episode seven drew is it and who do we have on next wednesday we're doing a special session on uh superannuation smsfs uh tips right with steven yep excellent all right great guys cheers